I started my day in therapy, I ended my day in therapy, and now I'm coping with alcohol. Welcome to Launchpad. Well, Dr. Will, welcome to the show. It's a delight to be here. It really is. It's great to have you on. I, so we talk about, uh, well, why entrepreneurials would need a therapist on a pretty regular basis. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I have one. I actually started the day at my therapist's office, and uh-huh. I'm interviewing yep. one, which is... <laughs> well, you know, the, the easiest diagnosis to give anybody, if you want to kind of be cocky about it, you can just say, well, it's clear you have an adjustment disorder, because <laughs> that generic term applies to anybody. And what does it mean? It just, as it says, it's like you're going through changes and you're struggling to adjust to it. Sometimes you adjust well, sometimes not. So you can always do that. Well, it sounds to me like you have an adjustment disorder, and you can always... <laughs> Always go with that. that uh, but you know what? When you're an entrepreneur, as you are, and uh, my career really is like entrepreneurial, I guess, it means that if you have if you have the ability to cope with a change in adjustment and, and you get energized by it and you get rattled sometimes, you get energized by it and like push ahead, you know, you have what it takes to be an entrepreneur because you can handle the adjustment challenges, the adjustment disorder. So you do not have an adjustment disorder. As no, no, you've overcome it. I've, I've now pronounced that you've overcome any adjustment disorder you ever had. And I can't turn to go for the future now, Josh. It's possible. I don't know if you'll I be I could hit a wall <laughs> yeah. at, any, at, at any moment. I don't see I that happening. I find myself in no, no, the fetal no. position no, on there's my no, office floor. No, there's no vibe or mojo coming off you that says you're going <laughs> to be stopped. You'll just be doing something different maybe but uh that's good <laughs> yeah that, i mean that's uh as you said before the mics were on uh the add bouncing from one thing to the next you know so there's really something about that it's like it's like uh, anyone who is you know goes into something entrepreneurial you presume and you know this better than me as an entrepreneur it's like you know you're passionate about the thing you got your eyes on to go do uh but then there are so many variables you can't control that having uh the ability to cope with change and unpredictability is an essential quality for an entrepreneur. And um, I would agree with that. You know, and so, yeah, you have to be ready to like, well, okay, that door's shut. Let's try it this way. So you're still going after your long-term goal, but you have the ability to adjust and uh, kind of tap dance around the, the obstacles that come up. I'm also good at drinking my way through it well that's a coping it's a coping mechanism (laughs) so it's a good thing right no question yeah absolutely yeah you you know everyone has anxiety to some degree that's right everyone has anxiety and it's it's a good medicine it's just like you don't want to overdose on your prescription medicine you don't want to overdose on your alcohol but uh, it helps me quite a lot well and i mean i wouldn't want to meet the person that didn't need that they'd probably be a pretty scary individual to yeah 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 that's right yeah no drinking is a sign of well it's an issue put it that way So you have uh, quite an amazing roster of things that you've done, been involved in. I mean, let's start at the beginning. And you, you've obviously ended up uh, with an entrepreneurial mm-hmm. endeavor of, of uh, keynote speaking, which is... I think you get a kick out of my Reader's Digest biography. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, blue collar family, and uh, went to Catholic school. Uh, as one of the comedians used to say, you know, oh, I knew all about S&M. I was beaten by little women in black dresses my whole childhood. Uh, so, you know, I went to Catholic school. Then I went to college. Back in the day, this is like, I'm a real classic baby boomer back in the day. And you just, you went to you went to college. You just went to college. You know, I couldn't afford it. didn't have the grades, but I did it anyway. And then when I got out, um, it was 1971. And they had the draft lottery during Vietnam. They were drafting you into the mm-hmm. army. I was number one. 
I won the freaking lottery. <laughs> Honestly, my no birthday shit. came up number one. So I graduated on a Friday. Monday, my ass was in a truck. I was, you know, in basic training. Uh, I thought I was going to have to go to Vietnam, but I didn't because they were pulling. Anyway, long story short, so I get out of the army, but I had to do six years in the army. And then uh, got out, went to graduate school. I can't school. even fathom that at this moment. Yeah, yeah. In, in well, time. I didn't have a choice, really. Yeah. So. No, I mean, I can't, I can't fathom the government being like, well, I guess you're, you're enrolled in the army now, son. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. It blows my no mind. No question. Yeah, it's yeah. like, uh, okay, you know, there you go. And uh, But I was I was raised in a really strict uh, Catholic family. And so I remember calling my father. I was, was a big World War II guy, a hero, really. And I remember in basic training calling home and... Uh, and he goes, how you doing with your drill sergeant? And I blurted out. He never forgot this. He, I said, uh, oh, this guy's nothing compared to mom. And mom <laughs> kicked my ass way more. So I, got, I went to graduate school. And then in 1978, my brother was in law school in New York. And he was going to the new comedy clubs. They were new at the time. The Improvisation Comic Strip, Catch a Rising Star. And he says, man, you can do this. And so I quit my job in Massachusetts and moved down to New York and became a stand-up comic. And um, I had a teaching job in the day and was doing stand-up at night. And stand-up is an amazing entrepreneurial, and I think this is my maybe my, one of the first points I'd like to make to, to, to your listeners about entrepreneurial. It, it is, I, I don't know that there's another career that is so focused on you as an individual performer. I mean, even as a musician, if you're in a band, you're sort of, the other, the other folks with you kind of pad it. But comedy is so freaking raw that, you know, either people love you or they hate you, which means that you're in front of nice people or you're in front of assholes. And it's, it's like, and you can't do anything about it. It's probably one of the most vulnerable places anyone could ever put themselves. So Josh, what therefore happens to you after you do it night after night after night, it kind of develops a thick skin for you about, yeah. you know, you, you know, when they say, oh, there's no, uh, no bad audience, you know, every, ask any comment. Of course there are bad audiences. There were people called sociopaths and they're, you know, they're bad audiences. So, but anyway, as an entrepreneur, you have a very singular career. It's you with the agents and the bookers. Okay, fine. So you have to manage your business, the business of Will Miller. But guess what? You and I are comics together. We're all hanging out together. I mean, what gets you through are the 20, 25, 30 comics, very different in style. You may not even like their act. It doesn't matter. But it's together that you do it. I think the hardest part for an entrepreneur who's really a sole entrepreneur is uh, building that kind of connection of other people who support you through thick or thin and who kind of know what you're going through. It is. And it's a, it, it can be a fatal area of the sole entrepreneur moving growth, growth that, that, that position from moving from your individual self to having to work with a team Yes, can be undoing of, a, mm-hmm. of, of what you're doing because a lot of times entrepreneurs don't want to let go of things. Yep. Yeah. So well, cause, you I've, know, I've you, seen that you, happen. You, a you have times. to, you, you know, in other words, I mean this in the most sincere way. You are a visionary and, and you have a vision of what you'd like to have actualized. You yeah. know, you're envisioning it. Well, you hope and you're trying to get people who share the vision, not just who are not just sort of working with you or for you and are going on your vision, but that they share the vision. And that's that's a hard thing to communicate. In a comedy, we all had the same vision although we were separate little companies, you know, if if you will. Yeah. You know, and that that Making helps your own get you brand through of- it. Exactly. Things to sell. That's right. Yep. So, uh, so I did that, and uh, I was that for a long time, and and um, I remember my first job was at the uh, Pittsburgh Comedy Club, and it was uh, I think it was a kind of a mafia club, really. It was kind of really tough guys who ran it, you know. And uh, here I was, you know. And so I was the 
I was the MC, my first out of town gig in Pittsburgh. Uh, T.P. Mulrooney, who's still working as a, as a Chicago comic now, and Jay Leno. And Jay Leno at the time, this is like 82, uh, was well known among the comics. He had a few Tonight shows, but he really was not a star star until because it was before Letterman. And so we were in the green room, and, um, and uh, T.P.'s going, man, my f- career is really frustrating. And he goes, and so Leno goes, well, how long have you been doing it? And he goes, uh, <laughs> oh, about six years. He goes, every night? He goes, yeah, in Chicago, every night, I perform every night. So he goes, all right, six years, that means you just know who you are on stage. That's what he said. No shit. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, you perform every night for anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes. You're, you're, you're you know, chiseling away, making your voice, and you know who your identity is. You know what your persona is. He goes, and Leonard goes, I believe this is when it starts. You put five to seven years to know who you are. That's when your career begins. I'd say it's about the same for an entrepreneur. Exactly. Yeah. You're chiseling out what your identity is and what it is. And then you have mastery at, at around that time, doing it every day. You know. Is that the 10,000 hours? I don't know if yeah. math is no, on that. No, yeah. you know, that's exactly mm-hmm. right. It really is. And so it was pretty wise. And it was like, that's when you're selling what, what you're doing. And so... Um, there he was, and so after 10, you're still trying to figure out what you're making up until that point. Well, yeah, yeah. well, that's right. Yeah. So then, at about 12 years, it was 1990, and uh, my first little media break was uh, <laughs> I became a therapist. I went back to Columbia University and became a shrink. Uh, I was doing I was doing stand up. <laughs> that, that makes all the sense. Yeah, in the world. exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. It actually kind of does. I mean. Well, in other words, like, okay, you could say, oh, we have uh, Will Miller. He's an entrepreneur. No, he's nuts. Maybe he's just nuts. But anyway, so I was going to school in the day because it was like you know working. I was working every night, seven nights a week, and I was going taking classes in the day became a shrink and um uh you know i just really you know loved that and i and um it helped me with the other comedians because you know we're all trying to deal with our adjustment disorders well anyway so one comedians all the ones i've met have some pretty pretty checkered past oh yeah pretty messed up individuals yeah yeah, they're they're colorful Uh, yes put it that way and so uh this uh the producer uh one of the writers of nickelodeon nick at night tom hill uh approached us and he said, I have an idea for a character for you. And this character would be called Dr. Will, television therapist. And we filmed these things. And I looked like I was, a, you know, a therapist I in an office. I watched one today. It was yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. It's hilarious, right? And I'm like, mm-hmm. and I'm uh, analyzing, you know, um, uh, Gilligan's Island is a show about rage. Here's a young man who, through his ineptitude, essentially destroyed the lives of six other people. You're sitting here wondering, would this be the episode where one of the other castaways rise up and murder Gilligan in retaliation? And then we go, bong, bong, bong. Nick, Nick at nice talk to him. And then I would come back and I would go, what about you? Do you have a part of yourself that sabotages your well-being? Let me tell you, unless you slay your inner Gilligan, you'll never be off the island of your loneliness. That's what I was doing. <laughs> that's, and it was just an over-the-top hilarious. Yeah, and I did about 20 of these on different characters. I Dream of Jeannie and Lassie, et cetera. And, um, I watched the, was it the Dick Van Dyke one? The Dick that, Van Dyke, yeah. yeah, right. Why does he trip over <laughs> yeah. the bottom? And, yeah. Why is it always there? <laughs> exactly, that's right, yeah. Or is it possible that he's tripping himself? <laughs> that's right, fear of success. So anyway, so at the time, so I'm touring a comedian, and, and I came out to Indianapolis to, to uh, headline a Crackers, and so part of the routine back in the day was uh, you would go on to the local radio shows promoting you in no matter what city you were in, Kansas City, LA, whatever. And so I go on the Bob and Tom show here and, and, and Tom found out he loved the Nick at Night stuff, and he found out that I was a real shrink. And so they he they invited me to kind of be a regular cast member as their therapist. And so I was rarely on as a comic. 
And a lot of the people who knew me from Bob and Tom don't know me as a stand-up. They knew me as Dr. Will, the therapist. You know, An actual hope, therapist. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah, dealing dealing with them, which was really a blast. Which you are, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so uh, and then um, then I had a TV show on NBC for a year called The Other Side, which was whacked. It was like, you know, uh, it was a show about paranormal experiences and stuff. And I did it for a year. It was in the Tonight, the old Tonight Show studio. And so I was on camera every day for an hour, you know, and I was like, Ugh. you know, I didn't I didn't really like the show. I mean, the show was great, except for the show. You know, I was like, you know, talking to people who were like basically kind of lunatics, actually. And so I quit and went back to corporate speaking. Um, now, now I, I do corporate speaking. You know, I do like a entertainment and at companies, and you know, that's that's my entrepreneurial. Yeah, your your stage presence is fantastic. By the way, I watched yeah. a couple of clips today. Oh, cool! You're, yeah, you're, yeah. Well, you know, twenty years of stand up, man. I tell you what, it it, it, yeah. it it kicks it into you. Yep, that's right. Yeah. So you've been doing that for, um, that for probably now fifteen years. I'm old. I'm an old. I'm a senior citizen. You know? I couldn't tell. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. sixty six, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so I had, a, I had a lot of fun in the past. You know, I went to Woodstock. The Woodstock. I was at yeah, the Woodstock. I'm old enough to have said I went to the Woodstock. How old were you when that was going? Nineteen. It was nineteen. Hey, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, you have any good Woodstock. I stories? saw Jimi Hendrix play the Star Spangled Banner. No shit. Yeah, Monday morning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My brush with it. No one knew it was going to be. How do you remember it? Well, actually, uh, there's an even funnier <laughs> story that I, I think you'll like. But but anyway, uh, um, uh, you know, back in the day in in the big cities, AM it was AM radio, not FM. It was AM radio. That's all you listened to was AM radio. Those were the rock stations. And so the hottest in New York was, um, I think it was WNBC or something like that. And so we knew everyone kind of knew there was a Woodstock festival with a whole bunch of great acts coming there, but you know, no one could get tickets. And so on Thursday afternoon in New York radio and drive time, the DJ comes on and he goes, the state police have asked us to issue a warning that uh, there are no more tickets at Woodstock and thousands of young people are going up trying to get tickets. Do not go to Woodstock. Literally. Well, shit, that night, 100,000, yeah. 200,000 people from yeah. Connecticut, New Jersey, Thanks and, for and the New promo, York. Guys. Yeah, and just stormed the place and like a million people showed up. And so I was one of those idiots right after my job. At, I was working at a supermarket and my friend, you know, uh, Larry and I, we just kind of got in the car and we went up there. That's had absolutely to work five fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So then I, I call home to tell my mother, you know, call collect, you know, tell my parents, uh, uh, went to Woodstock. And, they, and so my mother goes, oh, your cousins are all there. I said, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Linoors and the McKeons, they're all there. I said, oh, okay, good. Where do I find them? Well, it turns out my great aunt May owned a farm about a mile away from Woodstock. Are you kidding me? I'm not, this it sounds like I'm making this up, yeah. but it's true. And so she says, go over there. She'll take care of you. So I walk or we find out. We walk over to Aunt May's. All my cousins are there. So when everyone was sleeping outside, I was in Aunt May's uh, uh, cabin uh, with my cousins. And then we would kind of walk over to the festival. I was the cleanest dressed guy in the whole damn. How cush is that? It's awesome. Because that festival had to have been a complete shit show. I mean, even today they're a mess and they're very well organized. And the the mud and it was great. But it was so edgy and out there. It was just, it was like no rules. It was, it was. You know what? It's something that I think a lot of young people long for now. It's just like, you know, we're not, we don't want to be into like like breaking through rules in a negative, violent way. But man, just get off my case. Do you know what I mean? Just shut up about it. And yeah. So, well, there weren't there just wasn't any rules, right? No, that's right. It was like the first exactly. thing of its kind. I was a 19-year-old kid and I looked at stuff people do in there that I, a young man should not look at. <laughs> 
you know, sex and that, you know, right, just right. I was like, oh my God, I had a sheltered life. It was like people just having sex on the lawn. It was like, oh my God, it was great. It was like pictures from the snake pit back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Those are amazing. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. I've heard of some pretty great stories about the snake pit. And and, and what was great is you could sort of like wander your way through the crowd and you get close to the stage, go back to the stage. It was on this beautifully sloped hill. Uh, and it was it was awesome. Uh, and the other thing too, which was I think music was healthy then, like it kind of is now in a way, because the mix of genres, you know, Country Joe and the Fish, The Who, mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix, Joan Baez. Um, you know, all of these like folkies and hard rockers all mingled. And, you know, there was less sort of like, I'm into this band, but not into that. Everyone was into like all of the music. It was just, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. One big conglomerated party. Of exactly. Awesome. That's right. Yep. Yep. So yeah, it was, it was a blast. Yeah. So why psychotherapy? Why'd you, why'd you go back to school? What was the, what was the driving force behind that? Well, I, I, uh, you know, um, uh, I've always been kind of self-directed. And, um, and I've always had this insatiable curiosity about what makes human beings tick. I mean, you know, because I've become absolutely enthralled with it in the past two years mm-hmm. between, I mean, I started, I needed, I needed some place to go. Yeah. So I started, I mean, through the course of life, mm-hmm. found myself a therapist because yep. it's doing my job is not an easy one. And it's nice to have somebody who really doesn't give a shit to talk to. If that makes, I mean, I don't. No, 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 no. You, you've hit, you've hit the the button about what why why psychotherapy works. Yeah. Let, let me tell you a story and illustrate it this way. Sure. One time, I remember I had a um, a family send their son to me for therapy. Uh-huh. Okay, he was seventeen years old, Ralph, <laughs> and um, Ralph came. And the reason that they sent him was because he couldn't get along with his father. He hated his father, and he was being defiant. And so uh, Ralph comes in, and I said, well, what's going on with you and your father? He goes, man, he's a butthead. That's all he says. He's a butthead. That's all he would say. And so uh, I asked him, well, why is he being there? He goes, I don't know. He says, he's a butthead. He was like, it went on like that. So at the end of the session, I said, all right, you're going to come back next week. I said, but between now and then, I want you to ask your mother or somebody, not your father, talk to somebody about what's going on with your father. Why do you think he won't let you drive the car? He didn't trust you. So the kid <laughs> comes back a week later, and he's like, oh, my God, you're not going to believe this. He goes, it turns out that my father had a twin brother named Ralph, I'm named after him, who was killed in a car wreck at 17. Well, ding, 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 hello, Dr. Freud, you know, hello, McFly. The reason that the, the father was having some problems yeah, was because he was a fear, you know. Well, instead of the idiot, father, father was a butthead. Why didn't he tell him this? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now, now, here's the point about what you're making at psychotherapy. Suppose he didn't come to a professional therapist. Suppose he went to his uncle Larry, who's an idiot. It's just an absolute Most idiot. Most Uncle Larry's are. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, Uncle Larry the idiot. And he says, man, dad's a buddy. won't let me drive the car. Even Uncle Larry was, of course not, you jerk. Because our brother Ralph was killed in a car wreck. You look just like him, named after him. I'll go talk to him. Don't worry about it. <laughs> the, 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 uh, the objectivity of not being involved in the emotion yes. gives you an, a, an asset yep. to look. The other thing that happened to me was uh, my first training was on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in Chinatown at a crack cocaine clinic. So I'm a comic at night and I'm doing that in the day. And um, You had to have really develop some good material for your Well, you know, I used to that. say that to people. I would say, you know, the comics would say, man, that's great material. I said, yeah, but they were so different. How, how do I talk about, you know, heroin addicts and schizophrenics and comedy? Hey, so, you know, um, <laughs> so I, I couldn't do, I just kept them separate. But <laughs> one of my mentor therapists said, you know, if you're going to learn to be a therapist and, and you don't want to, and you don't, you don't see yourself working over the course of your life with very, very, very ill people like this population, Train with them anyway, because when you see people who have severe, severe mental illness, 
it helps you when you're dealing with people who are healthy, healthier, because you see what the bottom is. And so then when you're talking to people who are functional, who are smart, who are really uh, intelligent and gifted, and they're struggling, and they themselves feel like, oh my God, this is awful, you kind of carry an optimism for them that they don't have. It's like you don't say it out loud, but it's like, you know, I know what coming apart as a human being looks like, and you're struggling, and I have empathy, and we'll work it out, but believe me, you're way ahead of the game. You really are way ahead of the game. And most people just need that kind of adjustment, you know? What's, what's I mean, look at di- it the other way. Like now, I feel like a bigger douche for even needing a therapist or wanting a therapist in the first place because no, it could be no, so much no, worse. No. <laughs> like, I, I just I really uh, got it together. What like, I just, what, the, what, I just, what, uh, yeah, what I just, what am I whining it just, about? It just backfired, didn't I? Just <laughs> yeah. like, man, I talked to that doctor Will, and now I just feel like hell. Um, no, no, no. It's it's. A, <laughs> but if I get if it gets bad enough, then I really will need a therapist. Yeah, <laughs> no, you, you know, it's like your your. Uh, when you're struggling with adjustment, see the other the other loopy thing in this that's changed. I mean, I've been a therapist for let me see, you know, 27 years. Um, the big difference in the past 10 to 15 is the brain research, the physiological differences that have come along with the brain. It's unbelievable because mm-hmm. people come and they have symptoms and they have physical symptoms and then they have emotional symptoms. Psychology is really increasingly about the functioning of your brain uh, and and a lot of people who have symptoms, uh, their brain gets flooded. And so, like anxiety, let's take anxiety. I'm dealing with someone who has a lot of anxiety, panic attacks, mm-hmm. okay? That's a physical symptom. Now you think about, oh, it's a psychological thing. Well, yeah, what does that mean? It means that this person's body is overtaking their ability to be calm and focused. And when, you, when, you, uh, when your frontal cortex shuts down, because it's kind of into the fight or flight thing, mm-hmm. uh, you can't process psychotherapy is basically you're borrowing my frontal cortex to sort of assess it and look at and give you some balance again. I, I work a lot with law enforcement. I work yep. with law enforcement. That's why you're not having a beer with me. Well, yeah, because I have to do some therapy very unfortunate. tonight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but uh, I, I really got very interested in the past 10 years in this area of chronic stress versus acute stress. And, okay. and first responders, police and fire, are a good sort of laboratory, if you will, about that because um, the research shows that the human body has amazing ability to cope with acute stress. You know, like um, um, let's say you're in a car crash or, or or just something happens, you witness something horrible, and you have a trauma, and you're like your whole system's elevated. You know, the back of your brain takes over, and it's like Gah. the the human body has amazing ability to recover without any damage at all from that. We have very poor equipment to handle chronic stress. Chronic stress is this kind of this low-grade gnawing where, you know, that's, that's mm-hmm. what kills your blood. You know, the guy who started this was a guy named Robert Sapolsky um, from Stanford University. And he did it by studying baboons. It's really interesting. 30 years ago, <laughs> he went to study baboons. And his thesis was that baboons, uh, their, their physiology was enough like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you ever see a baboon? I was like, yeah. oh, I always wish. Well, they I mean, were, like at the zoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always wish they were wearing slacks. I mean, there's, there's really not a good <laughs> yeah, thing to look at. Yeah. I could see that. But anyway, <laughs> but, but the reason he studied them was because they're a highly uh, social uh, tribe of, of animals. The alpha males at the top rules the roost, and then down, you know, all the way down to the females. You know, they're dominated by the alpha male. And his thesis was that the alpha male would have the healthiest blood, least stress. Good to be the king. But then when you went down the food chain, they, they would have more cortisol, more stress hormone, 
they're, they're got to be the opposite. Exactly. And so yeah. it was like, you know, so, so it was sure enough they, they took blood tests and they said, yeah, the alpha males have the healthiest blood. They do well. The more you're dominated and feel oppressed and can't control what's going on for you. Um, even if you think you're coping psychologically, it tells in your blood that's, you know, diabetes and clogged arteries. So it's not the opposite? No, no. It's, in other words, it's, it's what you would suspect that, that if you have power and control and you feel like you're in charge, uh, it's a healthier option than if you're dominated and you feel like you're always okay. having to please okay. and, uh, you yeah, know, the people up to, on top yep. of you. So anyway, so an entrepreneur is someone who has that alpha Thus, so, so inclination. We, well, we, so I talk about this. I've, I've said it a million times, uh, especially when giving people advice to when they, hey, Josh, I'm thinking about becoming an entrepreneur. I have this idea and I want to mm-hmm. start mm-hmm. this business. And my first piece of advice is that uh, it's going to destroy your life. It's the worst idea you've ever had. I mean, be, be prepared to lose your house, your wife, your mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, you may mm-hmm. as well just light it on fire right now. And if you're okay with that, then go ahead, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other side of it, it's also the most gratifying thing yep. that you'll That's ever right. do. Cause my, my life is a giant roller coaster. There's, um, there's these incredible highs and then there's these incredible lows, but for some reason it's very, it's very copable. Like, yeah. Yeah. You're you're a resilient person. In other words, you 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 go through and you feel and you experience the the lows that have that have kind of come upon you, uh, but then you have a uh, a, a strong uh, resilience to like fight back and say, okay, well, what's next? You well, know? The, is it the the delusion? Like, I, I guess I'm trying to relate it to what you were just saying about the it's good to be king. Uh huh. Yeah. Because I feel like the stress levels are higher at that point. Because no, you know what? I'm sorry. No, that's a really good. That's a really good observation and point. But what we're talking about here, the you know, the highs are sort of the emotional flood of high, mm-hmm. uh, and but but even if you're an entrepreneur and you're still in charge, you are still at the mercy of forces you can't control. Right. And those are, and those are the the if not the alpha the alpha uh, uh, persons, it's it's the. The, the alpha pressure of well, the, what you can't control. So it's it's forces I cannot control, but yes. I can always control my ability to move within those forces. Bingo. It's exactly right. Right. And that's the only, I'm just wondering if, if you're oppressed and like you, like the people mm-hmm. that have to work for me mm-hmm. can only move within my range. So in other words, here's, here's something that's. Smart. Unless they pull the pin like Warren and just say, well, yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> but you know, you, great story. think about this. In other words, the, the entrepreneur and it and it takes off and mm-hmm. how common is this story in your field you know this you have an entrepreneur with brilliant perception brilliant vision it starts to come together it starts to congeal it starts to come together and all of a sudden more people are involved more systems are involved and suddenly now you're not a sole operator you are overseeing you know that that's a dicey point where how do i keep everyone who's now joined me to actualize this vision happy and connected and and pull Not the same direction because the, the the baboon scenario says that <laughs> if they feel like they're shut out from the excitement of the vision uh they will start to feel the pressure uh, of that and so um it's a pretty telling experiment that's why when you go to your doctor and you and you give blood like just have you know blood sample mm-hmm. and you get that sheet back with you know 30 things that they've seen in there is they're looking at your blood as the window into <laughs> your health you know 90 million americans have type 2 diabetes only 10 million know they do now diabetes is a blood Holy issue shit. yeah that's right and so it's a blood issue which means like i look fine from the outside but you know i'm kind of a slow cooking mess on the inside yeah my cholesterol's a little high yeah, yeah, there you go. That's right. So, 
So you're at that stage where you are you are in charge as an entrepreneur and and going at it and you have control of all the decisions about how to move this thing forward, but you are still at the mercy of and under the domination, if you will, of stuff that's outside that continues to thwart or get in the way. So your advice to entrepreneurs is spot on. It's like just, you know. I remember John Lovett in uh, a league of their own when this guy was on the train. He goes, uh, well, you know, if I get this territory, I'll be the lead salesman. And Lovett goes, yeah, that's great. If I had your life, I'd kill myself. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what you're saying. It's like, you better be prepared. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, that's right. You've got to be prepared. It's like, this is the most thrilling thing you've ever done, just as you said. And it's also going to like rock your world. Are you ready for that part of it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and most people just completely—I mean, they, they go into the "that's never going to happen to me," mm-hmm. which is exactly what I did. Like, and that would never happen to me. Exactly. I do that with every step of the way. <laughs> <laughs> like, we call it a like, so. Uh, what do I call it? My reality distortion field. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have an amazing reality distortion field. It's, it's a good I've, skill. I found that if you just are ridiculous enough to think that you can accomplish something, odds are you're going to get close. I mean. No, it's it's true. It's it's really true. I mean, you know, there there is some science to this idea that sort of began as like a an Eastern thing and still has kind of a woo-woo thing to it called creative visualization. Mm-hmm. And there's good science to that that you keep visualizing where you want to be in very vivid terms, um, and you actually make progress toward having that come true. And so you you do that. I mean, you can, you know, even if it's just at night before you go to sleep or something, just think about you know oh man, now now I'm at this stage and this is what's happened and this has come together. And that's what actually makes that stuff happen. You will it. You will it into reality. You literally will it into reality. Exactly right. Yeah, that's right. For what is, is I think it's a Steve Jobs quote. The people that are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones that do. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Be the change you want to see. I mean, you know, and uh, so look what you're doing. I mean, a podcast, I'm sitting here with this unbelievable mind-blowing invention this thing where beer comes up from the bottle of a glass that's like genie stuff that's unbelievable it it's it's one of the most incredible things i've ever seen yes incredible absolutely <laughs> it came out yes. of my brain <laughs> yeah. see there yeah, you go it's a good and you know what's interesting and i think this is helpful to keep in mind you know right now as an entrepreneur a person who's wired as an entrepreneur this is your thing now. Do you think that is necessary? Do you think somebody that's not wired as an entrepreneur can become an entrepreneur? Well, it's uh, now you're getting into the area, and I, and I mean this seriously about about resilience. You have to be resilient, mm-hmm. and so the, you know the, the research on what makes a person resilient is about thirty years old, and it used to be like, oh, it's just your genetics, you know what? Well, yeah, that's one part of it, but the there are two other variables that are very very powerful in being resilient. So anyone out there who you know, saying, well, I can't be an entrepreneur because, you know, you know, I, I come from a family that's really compromised, a real mm-hmm. mess. You, you, know, you know, that's only one part of it. I was going to say that could be the exact reason you should be an entrepreneur. Well, that's right. Yeah. Because usually, and usually in those situations, the other variable with resilience is there was somebody young or throughout your childhood who believed in you and you kind of fed off what they gave you. Even if, you know, mom and dad were imperfect or family, if there was someone you could hold on to, whether it's an uncle, a teacher, somebody like that, whatever. But then the, the, the telling thing going forward is a social support system. I mean, that's, that's what matters. That's what I had with the comics. Because as lonely as it is when you're feeling, you know, uh-huh. well, no one no one's you know hire i mean like i'm i'm working on the clubs but it's like pfft, you know I'm, I'm not going anywhere 6 or 7 years nothing's happening but it's with the other comics hanging out at night uh, at the clubs after hours that gets you through because you're all in that same boat so that social support system will keep you going so you know and the, so that's a cautionary tale for the individual entrepreneur 
It's not just about the support you have with your coworkers or the people working for you. You really need people who are going to stand by you shoulder to shoulder and, and hang with you and say, you can do it. You can do it. Yeah. Hmm. And you're going to. I'll be one of those guys. I'm, I'm one of those guys. I'm moving in here right now. <laughs> I'm one I of really guys. appreciate it. <laughs> professional shrink uh, mm-hmm. supporting the efforts. Of, mm-hmm. It's good. I'm not even that's, paying you. <laughs> no, that's right. No, I, I'll be happy to just be the spokesman. No, no, no. He's, uh, he's not able to come to the microphone now. He's very busy succeeding. <laughs> we'd appreciate if you'd go out in the lobby and sit down. <laughs> oh, man. There's a bajillion things that I want to talk to you about because you're. We, I've, we've wanted a therapist on the show forever. Like, well, you know, I can come back. I'm only up the road. I can come back, you know. I mean, I'm happy <laughs> to come back. Yeah, yeah, well, we're, yeah this is going to happen <laughs> We'll again. work on that. Yeah. Um, so, what, so what I found uh, is uh, lots of things. So one of the best parts of my job is I've slowly started. I just, I mean, and I realized this over the course of spending my own amount of time in therapy is that I'm learning to be a therapist. Yeah. And work and working with my employees. And I mean, I was just, it was well, a couple of weeks ago. Now I'm sitting there talking to her and. I'm like, well, you know, when people come in your office and then they're sitting there and, you know, most of the time they, they just let them talk and they, they talk themselves into what their answer is. And, mm-hmm. and I'm like, you, you know, I'm doing that right now with you. Yeah, that's right. Yes, <laughs> yeah. that's right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the, the, that word empathy gets underused and, yeah. and empathy means like, look, my story is different than your story, but I've been in, I've been in emotional places where you are and you'll come out of it. And, you know, like, uh, okay, you're in this spot now. Uh, there was a time I was in that spot, but now I'm farther ahead and I'm okay. You'll come out of this just the way I came so out of I that. So I struggle with empathy. Uh, I, and I was talking about it the other day uh, with my therapist, and I said, you know, I, I struggle with empathy. And she's like, no, no, you don't. No, you <laughs> like, don't. Maybe I just struggle with <clears throat> communicating Okay, well, that could empathy. be an issue. Yeah, yeah, Maybe. Yeah. That's right, yeah. But um, I, 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 I don't know. I, maybe what's the difference between empathy and sympathy? Um. Empathy means that, you know, sympathy means you, it, it's, it's kind of a, I, this term sounds weird, pathetic. It's like, you know, they're, they're, you feel a pathos for somebody. Oh, boy, that's miserable what they're going through. Empathy is like, oh, boy, I know some of that feeling. I know some of that feeling, you know. It's used, for example, when someone goes through a tragedy. Like, okay, say someone was in a, a car, someone you know is in a car mm-hmm. wreck, okay. Well, you're sympathetic. You feel terrible that they're in a car wreck. But for you in particular, it's like, Hey, six years ago, I was in a car wreck. I know what that's like to feel helpless. That's, that's empathy. There's a woman who studies this. It's a great book. I think you'll love the title. Uh, um, um, uh, it's called The Sociopath Next Door. <laughs> I do love the title. Okay, yeah, The Sociopath <laughs> Next Door. Martha Stout, S-T-O-U-T. Yes. And Martha Stout's from Harvard. She's a psychologist. And she's written kind of the book that that sort of de- defines. Now, a sociopath is someone who feels no empathy. I mean, they don't feel any other anyone else's feelings. They All right. have no empathy. You're headed down a road. I want to. Yeah, exactly. So, so this is what's really interesting is this is what sends a chill up your spine with this book. She's studied this, and she says the epidemiology, in other words, the frequency of, of people who don't have a conscience, is four percent in the population. Okay, that's one in twenty-five. One in twenty-five people is a sociopath. Now, here's the point that, that she makes, and it's so high. true. It's like, it's like you think about a sociopath, and naturally your mind goes toward very low-functioning sociopaths in prison, you know, guys who hurt people. And okay, yeah. But nah, uh, uh, it's, the, uh, it's the CEO of a company 
who closes down the whole uh, plant and then goes on TV and can act as if they have content. Oh, we're really sorry that we have to let go all these people. We're going to do everything we can. And then they, the microphone goes off and it's like, they don't give a shit. They don't, they don't feel it. They just, they're, be, they're, huh. they're talking as if they feel it. And uh, those are the people who really uh, do a lot of damage, uh, you know, across in their relationships because they don't feel it. We don't know why they don't feel it. Yeah. We don't know how it happens. Is it just genetic? Is it, you know, we don't know. You know, so yeah, trauma related, or? possibly yes, yes. I know with I know with um, there's a there's another diagnosis that's pretty hefty, and it affects women more than men. It's called borderline personality disorder. If you ever meet someone and and the word borderline comes up, immediately leave the relationship. It's just <laughs> what was the what was the one with the uh, with Glenn Close and Michael Douglas where you know she killed the rabbit and the you remember that? Thing? Oh yeah, uh, yeah, fatal attraction. Fatal attraction. I will not be ignored. She was a she was a borderline personality disorder, and and the the, the key with them is and this this will send a chill up the spine of some people listening it's that these are the people who are the warmest and friendliest people they make friendships really easy oh it's great hey we're now buddies it's jim carrey and cable guy it's like oh it's great it's great it's great but then as soon as they have a sense that you're abandoning them pulling away from them they the flip comes out and they go nuts they they their anger is completely out of proportion uh, to what it ought to be. And so that's her in, you know, I will not be ignored. And uh, Jim Carrey, oh, Billy, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, it's it's called splitting. They, they don't have any ambivalence in the middle. They either love or hate. There's nothing in the middle. And, uh, and, and sociopaths are just manipulative. Isn't this happy? So you're yeah, going to... Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so, so you know, everyone well, who I talk gets... About, I talk about... We're, no, go going. ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Because, so, um, we've talked about it on the show a couple times now. Um, and what's really funny is a, a girl I used to date, um, we're, we're hanging out in, um, my living room and she's reading this book on psychopaths mm-hmm. and I'm like, uh, she gets to a, a part where there's a test and I'm like, yeah. Oh, I'll take the test. Mm-hmm. Pass the fucking test. <laughs> she's like, she's like, uh, it says you're a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> what were the symptoms in particular that rattle you? Uh, nothing really rattled me. Cause I could really, I mean, I really, I, I felt all of them. I mean, we could bring one up online, and I could take it right now. I, but the uh, it, but then I so I became this is this is kind of when I started to really become intrigued with psychology and everything behind. It's a fascinating area, yeah. Entrepreneurialism and just people in general, really learning more about myself because mm-hmm. that I mean that kind of spark. Like I I love to know about things. Deciding to know more about myself has been one of the most amazing journeys I've been on. Yep, and it started about two years ago. Um, so it, it was, uh, I started researching it and, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs have psychopathic tendencies. Well, a, a, a sense of self grandeur. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't use that. Uh, I wouldn't use psychopathy. Psychopath is someone without a conscience who enjoys the suffering of other people. N- well, I and thought, that's not that this is what you're talking about is narcissism. N- no, no, is it? Okay. I mean, you're the, you're the psychopath. Well, 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 um, and, you know, narcissism, Freud was the one who coined the term, and it was from Greek mythology where Narcissus looked in the, in the, in the, in the lake and saw his reflection and could not, over, he was just taken with this. It's, it's complete involvement with the self. Everybody is narcissistic. Yeah. And if you're an entrepreneur and you're a self-starter, especially if you're young, it's like, yes, your narcissism is the tool that's helping you be self-caring to push, push ahead for yourself. That's different than, at the same time, wanting to be abusive toward or you know or or you know 
uh, harmful to the people around you who are not involved so in your project. In this test, that was one of the, the harmful mm-hmm. the questions were the ones that I did not get. But you had only you only you only had to get a certain percentage. That's to, right. to qualify. Absolutely, mine was minus the harmful. Tendencies. Yes, yeah. There's there's no way you're there's no way you're a psychopath. I don't I don't know. No, no, the no. test said so. Dr. <laughs> no, 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 no. It didn't. No, no. All right. Well, no. well question here then okay. is is psychopath and sociopath? Maybe they're mixing the two up. Maybe they're no. Well, a sociopath is very different than psychopath. Well, I get that, yes, but I wasn't sure if. But a, a psychopath is somebody, that's the serial killer. That's the someone right. who is actually taking joy. A psychopath, a sociopath and psychopath, sometimes the, the earliest signs are like, you know, abusing animals. Right. Not having, not having the capacity to understand the suffering of another creature. And you see that in childhood, for example. Well, I guess then the, the secondary question then would be, um, can, you, can you go down that path without being the deranged one, the one that, Yes. Kills. Yeah, that's what Martha Stout's talking about. Okay. Like if the epidemiology is one out of 25, it means there are some extremely highly successful people with families, etc. If you read her book, she gives some really cool case studies in there about, about people who have, they, you know, like this, this guy who's the CEO of a company, sociopath, uh, but he has a very, very successful, happy life, it seems, because he, he uses people to maneuver them. But then everyone sort of gets a piece of his success. And his wife is, you know, made to and children are made to be sort of passive and, you know, uh, uh, bow down to, to Big Daddy. And so, in other words, they've constructed and put together a life that works for them, even though inside their only motivation is is gratification of the self. That's and that's, you know, sociopathology and psychopathology are narcissism run amok. Okay. Okay. Narcissism. Mm. There's not an 18 year old, 28 year old, 40 year old in the career path who doesn't have healthy narcissistic impulses to to be successful. That's what it takes to be successful. You got to think about yourself. You know, if um, if you're if you if you have none of that, you're what's the technical term? A loser. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like you're you yeah, just kind of mailed it. But, but yet, okay. And I'm being a total wise ass. But then there are people who don't have that narcissistic tendency. Uh, this I think this will come out sensitively. I mean this. I was just speaking. Uh, I just gave a speech to a big uh, tech company in California, and we we're at this incredible resort in Carmel Valley, California. Rich, 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 rich. And um, and it was interesting because you know, in addition to the executives who were there, I also you know talked to the staff. You know, because um, I don't know. I didn't tell you this before. When I was first training at Columbia, did I did I tell you what my supervisor said to us? No. He said. Let me tell you who's from Brooklyn. He goes, let me tell you something. If you're not very, very nosy, you cannot be a therapist. You've got to be nosy and curious. Yeah. So I talked to the Makes staff sense. and others. And there are people, and a lot of the like um, uh, Latino workers who were there, uh, when I talk to them and, and inquire, they, they appear to be, have, you know, it's a generalization, very happy lives that are not consumed with self motivation, aggrandizement, success in business. I mean, their, their, their gratification for themselves comes in their family, you know, their children, their work, etc. They're happy to serve the narcissistic needs of the employer who takes care of them. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how the world works. And you're in, that, you're in that position where you have an inclination to be successful and to take care of people who come and enjoy uh, what your uh, powerful motivation and, yes, healthy narcissism is creating for them. So you're way more frickin' fine than you think you are. <laughs> healthy healthy narcissism. Which means that there is something wrong with you because your perceptions are, are <laughs> Yes! 
I watched a, I was watching a TED talk on, and so it was. A, I, I'm, I'm terrible at remembering the names of things, but it was a TED talk on a, on a writer, or it was done by a writer, and he, uh, he was trying to debunk um, Scientology. He's hanging out with these Scientologists, and they're talking about how psychotherapy is total BS. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so he's like, "Well, how? I mean, prove it. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Prove, prove it that psycho or psychotherapy is BS." He's like, "Well, we've got this guy who's in a mental hospital." a maximum security mental hospital and he doesn't belong there. He, he was put in there he faked it and, uh, he faked it a little too good and now he's stuck in there and they won't let him out. So can we make this introduction so you can see what we're talking about? Well, he goes and he, he goes to this place. He meets him guys, completely normal, dressed nice, doesn't look like anybody else in the building. Um, long story short, he gets back around and the doctors are saying, well, Anyone that would fake being a psychopath is a psychopath, <laughs> and that was that was that was the gist of it. So it was uh, it, it, it was pretty funny. Huh? You'd have to watch the TED talk. Well, I'm, it, I'm butchering know, it, but no, no, it's it's you know, and it's uh, uh, <coughs> pardon me. When you work active in, mental, in the mental health field, no matter what your discipline is, if you're a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or a social worker or a counselor. Um, oh, you know, social workers. That's got to be a rough one. Yeah, yeah. You, you come across you come across all of the different disciplines and what their focus is. And I have to tell you, as having worked in clinics a lot, um, uh, it's interesting what's going on in psychiatry because psychiatry is kind of like a, that's the premier discipline. You know, you can mm-hmm. medications, etc. But I think most working therapists will tell you that they have been they they've come across too many psychiatrists that are very narrowly limited to understanding the chemical issues that are going on and want to medicate Ooh, nice their subject. way out yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and oftentimes don't seem to have un, give enough credence uh, to the psychological or sociological issues. You know, there's a term in mental health that every mental health practitioner learns. It's called biopsychosocial approach. When, when someone comes to you challenged for something, I'm, you know, I need to come to therapist, you first must eliminate anything biological there's anything biological going on and it's like uh it's kind of rough rough uh, illustrations of that are erratic behavior and anger well are you dealing with a brain tumor seriously you know is it oh, so, yeah, bio, so you, you rule that out biopsycho psychological what's the psychological stuff that's going on uh in your life what's what traumas have you overcome etc and then social what's your social environment and the example i use there is like with children you know my wife's a school principal and so uh the school nurse or the school social worker you know if a kid begins to behave really badly in school well the inclination is oh this child is troubled well maybe not maybe the kid is behaving completely appropriately because his family is completely toxic and awful and his acting out is a symptom of the family being the patient not the kid yeah or maybe you're not challenging him in ways that he needs to be challenged exactly hello mcfly (laughs) i was there that's right and so uh and so, um, you know, behavior is just a set of symptoms. Mm-hmm. Just like in addictions, for example, uh, addictions, uh, um, you know, uh, I remember down at this, this drug clinic, um, the, the supervisor used to say, here, we actually begin with a very simple definition of an addiction. It's an, it's an irresistible impulse to change your mood. If you think about that in the broadest terms, it means that... Say it one more time. It's, it's, an, it's an irresistible impulse to change your mood. You're not comfortable in the mood you're in, and so you want to change the okay. mood. And so when, when, it, when it involves substances, you know, alcohol or drugs or something, well, it kind of makes sense. It's like, but what it tells you is that 
is that the use of the substance is not the core problem. It's the inability to sit still and be okay with your mood. Are you familiar sober. with the theory of constraints? Uh, tell me more. So theory of constraints, it was, it, it was developed by uh, Eli Goldratt. I use it all the time. My brain just naturally solves problems in that way. I, I found the book. Um, and it, uh, <clears throat> in the, in the, in the process of working through the theory of constraints, you start by building a current reality tree mm-hmm. and it looks for, um, underlying problems. Mm-hmm. So like you, you, a lot of times it's exactly what you're talking about. And I find them relating more and more, the more I do my own research is that there's a, um, more often than not, what people perceive as a problem is not the actual problem. It's caused by <laughs> a core problem. Yep. And yep. we we build, we do it for work all the time. We'll take post-it notes out and say, what's the problem? Yep. And we'll slap it at the top of the wall. Mm-hmm. And we'll say, why? Mm-hmm. And then we slap the post-it notes under that. Why? And then we get all the way down to the bottom and we're like, well, this is actually the problem. Exactly right. Right here. Not that. That's, That's not right. the problem. That's the symptom. I don't. Yeah, that's the symptom. I don't need Adderall for that. We got to right. fix this, and then I don't need anything. Exactly right. There so, were, do you use any process like that? In, oh, totally. I, yeah. I think. I think it's just. In other words, I think it's a. It's a parallel rhetoric mm-hmm. to the same process that that we're talking about. It's like, um, and and again, that's the that's the hunt of psychotherapy. It's like you know the cliche is. Um, you know, tell me about your mother. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. you want to get back to the roots because it's like, you know, what happened? What what kind of difficulty did you overcome? So, for example, say in relationship problems, okay, and, um, you know, you have a relationship and you find out, although up at the top the symptoms are fighting about money, sex, whatever it is, but when you get beneath it, it's like, uh, well, actually, no, you were looking for someone to take care of you and you were looking for someone you could take care of. Yeah. And, and, and when that gets out of balance, because the one who uh, wants to be taken care of all of a sudden decides they don't want to be taken care of anymore, not by you, uh, it upsets the whole chemistry. But the root goes back to the, that person when they were young uh, had parents who didn't take care of them well. And so that's what they're on the hunt for. It's, it's an amazing search. And I, I, I love therapy because it's like every, every life's a fingerprint and every story is amazing. And they're all fascinating. They are fascinating. Like this so. story has been fascinating and that's a good point to end on. Mm-hmm. There's so much more I want to talk about from... I'll come back. Uh, microdosing with psilocybin mushrooms to... Uh-huh. I mean, I, there's... <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's, yeah, all kinds yeah. of stuff that I want to cover I'm renting here. a Winnebago and I'm going to be parked out here for the next <laughs> <laughs> couple of months. So. Okay. We need therapy on this show. It's a delight. It's been great having you on. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry it's been so short. That's okay. It's fantastic. We'll do it again. That's my dick pic. <laughs> That's a better one. <laughs> it's all about perspective. <laughs>